0: Welcome to Literary Prospects, where we talk to authors and other literary professionals about books, publishing, and the writing life. I'm Kelly Vick, the host of the program, and it's my pleasure to introduce today's guest, executive producer Christopher Button. Christopher Button is the grandson of Kempton Button, a character immortalized in the new film, The Duke, starring Jim Broadbent and Helen Mirren. The film tells the true story behind the theft of a Goya painting from the National Gallery in London in 1961. The famous Duke of Wellington painting was allegedly stolen and held for ransom by retired bus driver Kempton Button, who planned to use the ransom money to help retirees pay for TV licenses. But there's so much more to the story. Years later, Kempton's grandson, Chris, decided to pitch his family's story in the form of a screenplay, which has been developed into a major motion picture that has received critical acclaim and is released in the U.S. on April 22nd. So, let's get started. Chris Button, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. This is going to be a pretty fun one. Um, First and foremost, without, of course, you know, giving any spoilers, I know you don't want to do that, but can you give us a synopsis of um, of this pretty cool family story that you've got that's been made into this fantastic film?
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 my um, my family story, um, mainly my dad and my granddad's story. and it's the story of the one and only uh, heist uh, from the National Gallery in 1961, and it was the heist of um, the uh, Goya's Duke of Wellington painting, um, and um, it was major news at the time. And uh, my family were involved in that, so um, it's it's really the the backstory to uh, what led to the heist, um, and it's. Um, really more more so uh, focuses on the family drama aspects and it's really around the working class struggle and um, the factors that kind of led led up to the heist and um, and then um, what happened afterwards. Um, so I've uh, known about the story for a long time and um, decided in, um, it, well, it was actually 2011 when uh, it was 50 years to the day of the anniversary, that there was a lot of, um, Information in the public domain released on it, and um, obviously I had insider information being within the family. I first heard about it when I was fourteen years old, and um, and so um, I was tracking along with all of this information that was released, and um, and a lot of it um, wasn't really accurate, and some of it I felt was unfair to my grandfather. So then I kind of had the idea that I felt it would be good to tell that his full story that. I thought would do him a little bit more justice than the information that was out there so this was back in 2011 so it's really just an idea at that stage.
0: How did you how did you first find out you said you were 14?
1: Yeah. How do
0: you find out when you're 14 that your family was involved in an art heist?
1: <laughs> yeah so good question so I was actually <laughs> on a um, an overnight ferry trip with my dad um, and it was a ferry from my hometown which at the time was North Shields which is a small town outside of uh, the city of Newcastle in England, and uh, it was a ferry that um, went to Bergen, and there's not much else to do on these ferries but sit in the bar, and my dad liked a pint, Um, and um, he'd had a few, and he let it slip, and to be honest, I thought he'd had a few too many at the time, (laughs) Um, So, um, but yeah, it was just kind of an amazing story to hear. I couldn't, like, initially... I couldn't believe it, but then he's not the type of person who would make such stories up, so I did believe him, um, but it just kind of blew my mind, to be honest. And But back then, I was only 14, so I didn't understand the sheer kind of gravity of it until years later, really. Um, the coolest thing to me at the time was the fact that it was referenced in the first ever James Bond film, Doctor No, um, and obviously every 14-year-old kid is a... most 14-year-old lads, anyway, from what... <laughs> where I'm from a big James Bond fan so I I found that pretty cool but then it wasn't something that was discussed really in the family so apart from that one time on the ferry when my dad had 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 a few drinks um, it wasn't something that he was proud of so it was really kind of never talked about really Um, and it it wasn't something he was proud of and other some other family members were actually a bit ashamed of it really so it's kind of just swept under the carpet.
0: And he never, did you talk, you didn't talk about it again until?
1: I didn't talk talk to him about it again until um, 2011, when I got he- more heavily involved in my own research on the story. And, and so um, what
0: prompted you to, to start doing more research and really get involved in, in 2011?
1: Yeah, so I was actually supporting um, um, a, a book that was being written. Um, so um, just by providing information um, on like doing research at I I'm in a unique position where I had access to my dad who knows the full story, obviously. Yeah. So um, I was able to, um, I wanted to kind of shield him a little bit from direct approaches. So it was kind of, active, was the go between. And then um, I would ask him a lot of questions for this research that I was doing at the time. Um, and the more research that I did, the more amazing I felt the story was and the more I felt this could really make a really good film if it was done right. Um, and then uh, but I didn't know how to do it at that time I was just kind of had no idea really it was just um, again just gathering information and I also in addition to uh, asking my dad questions that I, I took him on another ferry trip actually and so I could really like, a good amount of time with him I must have asked him 500 questions um, but then I also he also passed down to me his his own his dad's uh, plays that he'd written so his dad was an amateur writer and he was an aspiring writer, um, although he was uneducated. He left school at 13, this is Kempton, my grander, uh, he left school at 13 to work behind his mom's bar um, because he was tall for his age and it was, I think it was World War One, so of was short of staff. So, um, and he was pleased to leave school at that age. So he was kind of uneducated, but he had dreams um, to kind of do something and be somebody or be a writer anyway coming from the working class kind of poverty stricken area where he came from it's quite remarkable really because the fact that he would have such dreams and he really persevered for them um, but unfortunately he didn't succeed um, and he, he, he never managed to get anything published but um, what he did do is he handed the he left his uh, paintings these paintings he plays with my my dad who ha- passed them down to me and then during the research phase I um, had Access to all of these so I spent time to read all of his plays um, and um, through doing that I, I think I got to know who he was as a person I never actually met him he died the same year that I was born but by uh-huh. reading his, he wrote memoirs that kind of detailed every aspect of his life from when he was a kid all the way through to the past the heist and then he also wrote a number of plays that kind of give you a, a sense of his personality and his sense of humor, et cetera. So I, like my dad actually didn't tell me much about his side of the family at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of a journey of getting to know my family by reading his writings. Um, and the reason my dad really didn't mention anything, I, I think it was too painful for him, to be honest, it was they actually mm-hmm. suffered a lot of tragedy in their life and four, like four of my dad's siblings died in, in their parents' lifetime. For example, and I just think he didn't really have—he had very few photos of them, and he didn't talk about it. And I I, I, just—I'm pretty sure it's because it was too painful for him. So it was a—it was a journey of getting to know, um, like, kind of his side of the family by doing this research as well as kind of learning about the heist as well.
0: And you—you've got all this information now, and you're sitting here, and you've done all this research, and you know it's going to make a great film. But I think you know, as you mentioned. You didn't really know how to write yeah. a screenplay. So how, how did you get started with that? Like, how did you figure it out?
1: Yeah, it was, uh, so it was, as mentioned, it was like 2011 when I started doing the research and had the idea and I always believed it could make a good film. I didn't know for sure that it would, but I also felt at that time that it needs to be done right and it needs to be done authentically and um, and I also felt that if I'm not involved or my family's not involved in doing it, somebody else at some point is going to do this story because it's such an amazing quintessentially British historical story that I think it's inevitable that somebody will do it. And um, from seeing some of the information in the public domain that, that I felt was unfair to my da- my grandfather, I didn't want a film to go down the, the same route as that. And um, so... That was my main motivation, really, was to make sure the story, his story, was told correctly. And then it was 2013, and my dad had actually uh, had a, um, a cardiac arrest. And I got a phone call from my brother saying, "You need to get home. Um, I don't think it doesn't look like Dad's going to make the night." At this point, I'm living in New York. Oh wow! Um, and so I'm on the first plane back and then when it went by the time I get there he's made he's, he's amazed everybody he made this miraculous recovery um but it kind of it was a traumatic experience for everybody and I think living away from home as well mm-hmm. you feel almost even more helpless in some regards um so it kind of made me think a lot about the father-son relationship and about his relationship with his dad. And then also my wife was pregnant at, at the time and just about becoming a dad. So I was thinking a lot more about it. And then I kind of just had a an idea on how, I, like a, I guess a light bulb moment on how I, I thought, what, what I thought would work in a film. So then um, I just, I've got, I, I hadn't written anything since high school essentially. And um, I just, really hadn't have no training. So one thing I would want to put put out there now is like with regards to this podcast being called literary prospects, <laughs> I definitely wouldn't class myself as a literary prospect. <laughs> I'm a complete amateur. And, and it needed it, it truly needed um like an expert to come on board. And thankfully um we were able to get de- to get two brilliant writers and Richard Bean and Clive Coleman who who mm-hmm. came on board and, and made this into really the potential like, realize the potential of what this could be um my attempts of what I put together were useful for me because it was useful for my own research and it was helped me realize the factors that I felt were important that I wanted to be included such as the um, the family drama side of it and the, mm-hmm. the um, poverty that they were living through and also the tragedy these are two key factors that I felt were very important and terms of um these are factors that impacted my family psyche and led to the decisions that they made and um so um i just i, I downloaded final draft and then i actually um also downloaded a few screenplays that i like from films i liked mm-hmm. um, so really just cutting every corner possible and then kind of tried to incorporate what i thought i was incorporating certain elements of these. Plays that I liked and, and just really and had you say what they
0: were—the were, films and plays that you liked that were your uh, influences.
1: Rocky, <laughs> Rocky, Rocky, and uh, it was like underdog story, and and um, uh, just I think is it? yeah, just there was a, a few others, but Rocky was the main one. It's just because I know and hit Stallone's story as well. I think he just happened to write that screenplay. He he'd never written anything either, and. Uh-huh. Um, and just locked himself in a, a, his apartment in New York, and came up with that after three days or something. So um, I guess I was inspired. I was inspired by um, my Magranda, really, think because I was looking at reading his plays and thinking, mm-hmm. well, if he can do it, even though he didn't succeed, really, but if he can attempt it, then I, I can at least have a go. So mm-hmm. I thought, well, I'll, I'll have a I'll have a go at it. And then, um, but so yeah, downloaded final draft, and then kind of put it together as um kind of uh it, how as it, best that it sorry I've got, I've got to
0: no problem um so um
1: yeah so but really what the the result was more or less kind of i created a sales pitch um what do you want us to pause this uh, try, yeah so it was um so yeah, mine really, I wouldn't go as far to call it a, a screenplay. It was more of a sales pitch that um, helped me um, kind of sell it to the producer who, who came on board. And mm-hmm. um, fortunately, she really bought into the elements that I felt were important. Um, and then she was able to take it to the next stage and um, bring it to the stage it's at, which is unbelievable, really. We never expected to To get this far, never expected it. I was like, I always felt we could, it could make a good film, but I never expected it to turn out as well as it has. It's like all the stars have aligned in terms of the producer who came on board, like her attention to detail, the writers, as mentioned, Richard Bean, Clyde Coleman, mm-hmm. who really took it, um, to, um, made it uh, like like to another level, and uh, the director Roger Mitchell, who's no longer with us, unfortunately. A brilliant director and uh, then the cast was a dream cast we couldn't have dreamed of a better cast with, with Helen Mirren obviously and, and Jim Broadbent and then the supporting cast were amazing as well it was just it's it's a I don't think it's going to sink in for like another 10 years to be like, <laughs> it's, it's just turned out like really really well
0: let's well let's talk about that a little bit more so you know we've we've gotten up to you've you've got this draft finally that's sitting on your computer and how do you get from you, you finally finished something but how do you get it in the hands of a producer that can actually like take it and do something with it can you take us through that a little bit you finished your yeah. draft and then what
1: yeah sorry my dogs are about to have it played by now come now no comment um so yeah good question so Um, I knew that it's after I kind of finished it I knew that it's really a a very like I was living in New York at the time I was mentioned but I knew it was a very British story Mm
0: -hmm.
1: like um, on every level really it's about working class life in Britain Um, incorporates the BBC and, and an iconic Um, uh, figure, of the Duke of Wellington, who's um, painted by a a master uh, artist. Um, I didn't want to kind of reach out to the biggest production companies because I felt it would be difficult to kind of get through Mm -hmm. to them. So I've managed to find a a film festival PDF online, which had about 20 or 30 direct email contacts of smaller production companies. So um, once I had that... um, I then put together an email, which was like two paragraphs and with a synopsis. And like, I think the, the first like, um, sentence was um, asking for permission would, would, to view my screenplay. Um, the synopsis is below and it was just a paragraph synopsis of the heist. Um, and then um, I actually got about six responses from about 20 emails. Who wow! wanted that's- to see the screenplay. And that's because the story is so amazing. Um, like the, the true story that really, even though it was very famous at the time in 1961, when, it, when the theft happened, l- very little was known about it since because it was, it was swept under the carpet by the authorities, really. So it kind of got forgotten about and nobody had really told it.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so um, it definitely wasn't my... Um, skills as a screenwriter that got this kind of got the interest here was the fact that it was a true story and um it and and what I've learned during this process is that film companies especially always prefer true stories if possible um, over fiction um so you, you're more likely to get it produced I think if if it's a true story so um, the fact that that was um, part of it is what opened the door and I, I think. Um, the producer Nikki Bentham from Neon Films. Um, she her initial response was, "I don't n- usually take un- unsolicited requests, but um, I'm intrigued because she because of the true story aspect." And she couldn't believe it. I've since learned I was, she couldn't believe it initially. She thought it was too good to be true. So then she did her own research, and it all kind of um, checked out. So then she said, "Yeah, go ahead, send the screenplay through." So. The, So I sent it through to Nikki and then um, um, another three or four production companies who requested it. Uh, And then after after sending the screenplay, there were still three companies interested in it. Um, And um, then um, I had Zoom calls with them all. And um, it was really just the first call that I had with Nikki Bentham. I felt that she was the right person to, to take it forward just because. She was so enthusiastic and and bought into the factors that I felt were important.
0: Mm-hmm. And then, so so she decides she's going to take it forward. And then, I mean, how does it all work from there? She hires. I think you mentioned before. Obviously, you know, she brought on some writers to sort of really judge up the. Yeah. So the f-
1: f- so so um, after the Zoom call, then she decided that she wanted to option the screenplay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then I um, got legal advice and I, I got a, a lawyer um, from New York, because I'm based in New York, who uh, arranged the contract with the lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once that was all finalized, then um, uh, we we had more Zoom calls. I shared all of the research that I had with her. So in addition to the screenplay that I put together, um, I shared all of my grandfather's writings, all of his plays and all of the other information I collected. So we had a kind of an archive of different materials, photos of family members, even had newspaper, um, original newspapers from the day, um, and then all the players as well. So um, I I was able to share all of that with her. Um, And in fact, I think I might have shared some of that even before the option, uh, before she optioned it. Um, And then um, next thing was a meeting directly. So then I flew to the UK and, um, and I flew to Newcastle. And then she came up to Newcastle with, um, at the time uh, with, with another writer who they were originally gonna use. Um, so actually I, I skipped over that point. So once they optioned it, mm-hmm. then um, we agreed that it would be best to bring on professional writers at that mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. um and i'm a, i was moved over to the producer side which is effectively more fitting and, and really what my role was because i've helped produce it in the sense of providing all of the research and mm-hmm. kind of um, and also the input in terms of how i felt the family story should be told etc
0: mm-hmm.
1: um so that was agreed um within uh, the option as well um and then um then um, when i met her in england um I um, took her, kind of give her a tour of, of Newcastle. So I had a, peep- a people carrier car mm-hmm. and I had my cousin, who's also Kempton's grandson, but he's older than me. So he can remember my grandfather. I had my dad and um, my brother. met briefly with Nicky um, like, uh, in Newcastle. Um, and then um, we just drove around all of the local areas where kind of my grandparents used to live where he was born and kind of um, spent two days with, with Nikki at that point, at that stage. And then um, about two years later, um, I had another meeting with Nikki as well. And then I also had a meeting um, so that they decided to change writers um, um, from the original writer that they brought on, they, they changed. And then um, I did, um, I met uh, Richard Bean as well in New York, just briefly brought up about uh, two hours in New York. Mm -hmm. Um, as well so that was really my involvement which was more so before like like essentially once I handed everything over to Nikki it was her her baby and she kind of just like 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 I say she I trusted that she would do it well Mm -hmm. because she bought into what um we felt were important and then I just kind of let let her let her go with it and as, as mentioned, she's just done an amazing job to bring it to this point.
0: How did, uh, How did it change in the end, uh, you know, from the, the screen, your original screenplay to what ended up being the screenplay for the movie? And did you have anything in, in your original that was sort of a non-negotiable for you when you were talking with, with Nikki and the new writers about how this was going to go forward?
1: no no um no um but I trusted Nikki and, mm. and so um and yeah I didn't kind of um have any non-negotiables um but really how, how it changed it's so I don't actually believe the writers would have seen my what I wrote to be honest mm-hmm. um, I think legally that's wouldn't be make sense anyway so um They worked essentially effectively with um, with Nikki, and I think Nikki gave them a a framework. I believe um, in Mm -hmm. terms of, for example, they didn't want it to be a heist film um, to be presented as a heist film. So it is a heist film, but it's unlike any heist film we've ever seen. Mm -hmm. But there was the remit to focus more on the family drama side, and again that. That's something that I was I, we felt were I felt was important and that mm. I shared directly with Nikki. Mm. And then there's also some tragedy, quite a lot of tragedy in, in the film that um, I included in what I put together um, in terms of um, um, one of the family members who who passed away. So um, that was included. And I'm pleased to say that that, that they, they they stuck with that. And I think it's it's a very important factor. Um, and um, but yeah the, the, the writers really just they, they ha- had free reign to, to uh, but they also used like there was so much research like mm-hmm. separate from my screenplay which as mentioned I'm pretty sure the writers didn't read um, but <laughs> um, they had um, they had access to all the plays all of his mm-hmm. plays and his memoirs and they also had the tr- court transcripts of which I, I provided some of the, the court transcripts but I believe Nikki went and got the full court transcripts from, um, from the court, and they they were able to draw on, um, kind of the transcripts a lot for the court case. So a lot of what is covered in the court case, they actually, they they took from directly from, um, the uh, the transcripts. So a lot of the, his words in in the film are actually his words, um, my grandmother's words, um, and also I mean it was very authentic every scene in the film is pretty much based on true events so whether that originated was in my initial screenplay which some of the scenes were um, like the bakery scene for example um, although they, they re- re- did redid it completely um, um, the writers but that was also in his memoirs as well and there's a scene where he leaves he kind of stands his ground and leaves his job at, at the bakery because he's protesting the racism of, of fellow worker um, so that was again all true information so pretty much everything was taken from the research and what was there um, and, but then the writers had to kind of formulate that in a, a way that flowed in an entertaining way and uh, incorporate it as best as they can and they did an amazing job at that
0: what made you I, it, it wasn't a short process right from the the time when you thought you know I feel like this would make a really good film to um you actually getting a screenplay written and then not only getting a screenplay written but finding a producer for it and then going through and meeting the producer I mean this is a long a lot of people wouldn't yeah. keep at it you know what yeah what made you persevere I guess like you know get what made you keep at it and really like get this story told
1: um so again it was just go- going back to ha- feeling that my-, my grandfather hadn't really been treated fairly i was really motivated to tell his full story that i thought would do more justice mm-hmm. um and this is based on some of the things that were written back in kind of 2011 2012 and then um but the process of the actual screenplay itself was fairly quick. And, the, and from that process to getting the agreement with um, Nikki Bentham and Neon Phillips was fairly quick. So it really like was on the back burner in my head, even though I'd done all the research and I felt it would make a good film. But then it was, and I keep getting my dates mixed up on different interviews. And I've just realized when I dug into my emails the other day that completely was telling the wrong dates on some other interviews but it <laughs> was actually 2014 that so it's 2013 my dad had the heart attack and when I was like and so it was just a process of me thinking at that point I wasn't writing anything down I was just kind of constantly thinking how could I tell this or what's a good way to tell the story and then once I came up with a what I felt was could work um I actually wrote what I wrote in probably about like two weeks or something if that
0: wow um, were you writing all day long
1: it was um yeah kind of it was like uh, you've seen jerry Maguire, i'm sure you know he's like <laughs> up at night and he's like typing it was like that so, so he was pregnant and it was just i had an idea and i was i remember writing it like three four five in the morning because i had this ideas flowing in mm-hmm. um, not that they use many of them i mean some <laughs> of it as i mentioned was incorporate but i thought it was a good idea so i was kind of re- writing this stuff and so then um so that process was probably only about two weeks or something and then then i emailed the producers and really that process was maybe within from my first email to nikki to the option actually it'd be interesting to see that but um from memory that was probably done in about two months um i can double check exactly but uh, yeah so that process didn't take that long but um yeah, I just, um, so I'm just, it's I'm pleased the way it's turned out. Yeah. <laughs> Keep uh, <saying> and, that. <laughs> and,
0: and speaking of how it's turned out, the film is being extremely well-received uh, by moviegoers. What do you think it is about this story and this movie that connects so well with a modern audience? Obviously, we've mentioned, you know, this is about events that happened around, 1961, so um, what do you think is connecting so well with audiences today?
1: Yeah, like uh, it is obviously uh, set in in the early 60s, but just the the general message of the film is very relevant to today. Um, And the message is really about communities coming together and helping out those in society who are less fortunate than yourself and being kind to one another. And, um, and, also a big theme of of the film is, was my, my grandest campaign, which was to get free TV licenses uh, for pensioners, which he was very passionate about. And um, he actually, um, he he was so passionate to the point that uh, even before the heist, he went to jail three times for refusing to pay his TV license.
0: Hold on, um, okay. for, for American audiences, can you explain yeah. for a second what a TV license is?
1: <laughs> yeah, so TV license, so the BBC is kind of, um was the the first TV channel in the UK. So in the 60s, it was the only full-time channel, and I think it was only one channel at that point in the 50s. Um, but um you had to pay a license fee every year to be able to watch the TV. Um mm-hmm. and if you don't don't pay the license fee, you can get put in jail. Um, so um Kempton migranda um really, he was a wannabe playwright, as mentioned, and he, so he was an avid BBC watcher as well, because there was a lot of plays and it was the only channel, really. There was a, IDV was part-time at that time. Mm-hmm. So he got a lot of inspiration from kind of the plays that he watched. And um, But then his his own dad came back from World War One and he was disabled and um, he ended up somewhat isolated. And I think, I think Kempton was really driven from um, living through that and seeing how his dad ended up. And he felt that, um, pensioners shouldn't have to pay a license fee, especially when they've worked their whole life, mm-hmm. um, most likely paid taxes their whole life. And then his dad and lots of cases like war veterans have served their country and given, given their limbs and their lives for, for the country. So he felt it was unfair to charge them a license fee. Mm-hmm. And he also felt that TV could be a cure for loneliness for such characters as his dad who uh, maybe live alone and don't have much family. Um, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of war widows and war veterans in, in that situation so he was really determined to, um, to um, do something for the betterment of such characters and um, it was really that message resonates a lot today with regards to everybody now coming experiencing COVID and everyone's mm-hmm. experienced isolation and I think everyone can have a, has a better understanding of the effects of isolation on mental health as well so that's, a, that's the message of the film that is very relevant to today, but then the other message is just being kind and uh, people in the community and looking out for one another and like with all the horrible news at the minute. Um, I think, you know, like um, everybody um, can relate to that and um, it's a positive message and it's definitely kind of, a, the film I think is a bit of a tonic that people need coming out of um, d- during the current times.
0: I think that that is a wonderful place to leave it, except for my usual final question, which normally for um, authors is, if or when your book is made into a movie or TV series, what would you have the theme song be? Of course, in this case, your screenplay um, has already been made into the movie and there is an original theme, which is composed by George Fenton, but did you have um a theme song in your head when you were working on this or writing the screenplay or if you had to choose something that was already recorded what would you what would you choose
1: that's a good question I wish I had like prior (laughs) notice to this um so yeah no um I guess there's there's a there's a. I was I was thinking at the time of a local artist. So you have the animals and the House of the Rising Sun, but that's not really a good fit. Um, it's a great song, not really a good fit. I think um, there's another local group called Dire Straits who um wrote a song called Well, it's it's a theme really of look called Local Hero, which is um probably more relevant, even though that song was written in the eighties. Um, so yeah, maybe Local Hero. It's
0: great. I like it. Chris, thank you so much for being on. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. All
1: right. Thank you. Thanks a lot.
0: Thanks for joining us on Literary Prospect. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. We'll see you next time.